You're listening to MedTech Monday, a podcast series about medical technologies, digital health, trends, entrepreneurship, innovation, and commercialization. Brought to you by the New England Medical Innovation Center, otherwise known as NEMIC. NEMIC is the premier MedTech venture studio and business accelerator supporting regulated medical technologies to achieve successful fundraising and commercialization. Explore how we can support your venture at www.nemiccenter.com. That's N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to MedTech Monday. Today's guest is Kate McNamee, the Director of Design Research at Zymedica, who is also today's episode sponsor. As always, I'm so excited to host these types of episodes because that means I get to speak with someone from within the Zymedica family who is always so knowledgeable to what is going on in the medtech industry every given moment. For any listeners, Zymedica is a medical device design development company that was recently acquired by Veronex. The addition of Zymedica's innovation, design, and manufacturing capabilities grows Veronex into a global tech-enabled service provider dedicated dedicated to the medical technology industry that accelerates speed to market, controlled development costs, risk mitigation, and market viability for their clients. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about your background that led you to your position now of Director of Design Research? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. So my background academically is in cognitive neuroscience with an emphasis in human factors, and that is kind of a mouthful. But usually what it means is that I study the brain and how the brain affects behavior and vice versa. So that that relationship is, is really key. And I always talk about, you know, I'm really in the business of people. And that means I'm in the business of all business because all businesses are made by and for people and they're comprised of people. And so really my job, you know, coming out of grad school, I really wanted to work in the medical device field. I liked the idea of healthcare, making healthcare safer and just sort of working towards a a broader goal, finding some greater meaning in my professional life. That turned into a job working in product development consulting, where I've been my entire career. And a lot of the time that I spend is in the early phases of research, where I sort of found my niche, because there's so much freedom there to design studies. There's freedom to investigate things that, you know, along the line in product development, we get very rigid, and there's only certain things you can change. And so I, I like working before the point of no return, essentially, so that, that I can still make recommendations and update designs to be safer, more efficacious, and uh, more usable. Awesome. And in your role now, what does your day-to-day look like? Ooh, great question. So I think, you know, directing is an interesting one because it's, you're, you're doing a little bit of the project work. You're working with clients to help them understand, you know, how they should design a study. And you're working with, you know, mentoring a team to make sure that they're helping clients appropriately. But there's also an aspect of, you know, doing research and some thought leadership too, because really it's important for us not only to have a good practice in our professional environment, but to help the industry grow and to try to really establish best practices and raise the standard across the industry. So a lot of my job is sort of split between the the day-to-day program work and then also the broader industry perspective. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So for today's episode and based on our previous conversation, I think we wanted to dive deeper into the topic of collecting data and advanced statistics within medical technologies and devices. And at NEMIC, we've seen many new medical innovations come through our doors. And there's always this question that usually comes up 
too late in the startups that we see and, and too late in the development process about, you know, how can we add sensors or how can we add things that collect data on these technologies, usually focused on like the technology's reimbursement strategy. I'm interested in your opinion. And, you know, we see this happen all the time and you're working, like you said, before that point of no return to kind of figure out, you know, what we need to do on the really early stages to make sure we set up these devices for success. And I'm interested in your opinion on, you know, how we can talk to entrepreneurs and how we can talk to clients about collecting the right types of data in that research phase to set up the technologies for success. Do you want to kind of give your thoughts on that? We can get deeper into it. Awesome. So the way that I'll start out is that I know that there's a trap in the industry right now where data feels like it's the hot thing. Everyone talks about big data. Everyone talks about AI. And everyone feels that if they don't have that, they're behind the curve. So I think that a lot of entrepreneurs starting out, you know, these are folks who want success for their product. They want to establish themselves as a trustworthy name in the industry. And so they go to data and say, okay, well, this is, this is just one of the boxes to check off. But what I say to that is that data for data's sake is always a mistake. And the reason for that is that it's really, it's a combination of value and business case. So on the value side, the way I think about data is if someone says, okay, well, what what data can we collect? How can we, you know, if if their model isn't monetizing data, and sometimes even if it is, there should be a clear hypothesis as to what data you need and what those data are going to say, and then why that matters to the patient, why that matters to the user, the provider, and, you know, if you're even thinking about reimbursement, why it matters to a payer. So going in and saying, okay, well, let's, you know, we have this great product, we really like it. But, you know, we want to make sure that it's, you know, it has a bell or a whistle or a gimmick here. And we want to make sure we get this data in here. What sensors can we add? You know, that's going to get really expensive over time because it's a little bit like what, you know, in in graduate school, they would call it p-hacking, which is basically collecting a ton of data. And then I guess the nice word for it would be exploratory research, right? So you have all this massive data set and you go, okay, what's interesting about this data set? And if you do that with medical device collecting those data, figuring out how to analyze those data, figuring out which of those data are ultimately useful, and then trying to hone that down. That's a whole long process similar to software development. You know, you're talking about this whole thing. And and if you find at the end that there's nothing useful about it, or that payers, providers, or patients don't care about those data, then you've gone through this massive business endeavor and you've you know, collected things and you've changed your manufacturing process all for kind of nothing. So a lot of what I try to do is help people early on. It's, it's important for entrepreneurs always, whether they're working with consulting or not, to say, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for the sake of doing it or am I doing it because you know, I feel I need to, you know, I need to have these data to provide value? It's really interesting. I obviously work very closely with Aiden Petrie, who founded Bosai Medica and Nemec. And one of the things he always speaks about is answering the why first. And I think that it's hard to keep that in the forefront of your mind as, you know, even after you are in like that ideation and innovation, so like time to focus on that why we're doing any of this as you're kind of building a technology and building a company because there's so much stuff that comes with that. What are you seeing now? And this is kind of an open-ended question, but um, it's kind of a very broad question, but what are the right pieces of data and the wrong pieces of data that you have seen kind of people try to pull? Or I think I'll pose it a little differently. What is a good time and what like to really narrow in on finding that right piece of data? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. I think that examples of good and bad data are entirely dependent on the product because bad data for one product or one user group might be incredible data for another. 
But to your point, you know, the starting with why, and I'm fairly sure one of my colleagues recommended, I was, I was talking about my, my passion for root causing and like the why of everything. And he goes, there's a book you should read. It's called Start With Why. And so I, don't, I can't recall the author particularly, but it might be worthwhile for our listeners if they're interested in more of that, same, that sort of information to read the book, Start With Why. You know, for me, it is, you know, let's say you, you are at a point, I think in entrepreneurial endeavors in general, what really happens is that the R&D folks are so very rarely the ones who bring it all the way to market. And what I find happens is that, you know, at some point, the clinician with a great idea or the electrical engineer who's transitioned to be an entrepreneur, they have to let go at some point. And it's best to get the data and have a good reason for your data before that point. So I consider data to be an R&D endeavor. And the reason for that is that once you hand it over to the business folks, there's marketing involved, there's sales, you're looking at series ABC funding, you know, there, there's all these different things. But if you can still do this while you're working with angels, while there's, again, that flexibility that we have early on, that's when you should be doing contextual interviews, ethnographic research. You should be talking to the actual people who are actually intended to use or benefit from your device and say, you know, with, with a lot of thoughtfully crafted, unbiased questions, you know, what, what about your condition is frustrating? Is there information that you wish you had that you don't have access to? Is there anything that you want to know about day-to-day -day behaviors? You know, figuring out, depending on the device, and I'm giving very broad examples here because talking about specific devices is always a bit, you know, difficult, but you know, ultimately it's, it's about ensuring that you talk to people before the device even has a full form factor or while it's, you know, super prototyped it that way, again, if they say, Hey, we, you know, what we want ultimately is we want to be able to have a person, you know, grab onto to two different levers on this device. And we want to be able to send a current through their body and, you know, analyze some biometrics. And so it's like, okay, that's a whole different design than if they said, oh, well, all we need is a wearable strap to get, I don't know, maybe like O2 sat or pulse ox. So there are really different ways that you would design the device ultimately, depending on the data that you want to collect. And so if you have a device that's already nice and designed, then you're like, okay, now let's add the data. Data are flexible, data are ephemeral, they're digital, like no one, that doesn't, that doesn't affect the design. It actually absolutely does. And it should always affect the design. And if the data aren't there at the beginning of the design's conception, you're inevitably going to have, again, a more expensive process, a clunkier process, and potentially decrease the value or usability of your great idea just because you want to slap on something that somebody else thought you might need. Would you like to help communities recover from the opioid epidemic? If you said yes, and you are a behavioral health professional or paraprofessional, then I have great news for you. Receive up to $250,000 in student loan repayment in exchange for service in a community disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. Learn more and apply to join STAR LRP, and that stands for Substance Use Disorder Treatment and Recovery Loan Repayment Program. Use the link in the show notes or visit bhw.hrsa.gov to learn more. That's BHW, as in Behavioral Health Workforce, .hrsa.gov. Applications close on July 22nd. Welcome back. So, Kate, in one of our last conversations, you mentioned the term equitable data. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think that kind of goes with what you're speaking about before, but I'd love to tell our listeners about that. 
Yeah, that's that's a really great question. One of my my biggest pet peeves with, with medicine is that it has been traditionally low in diversity by the people who are studying it and practicing it. And so the, the issue that that raises is, you know, for instance, there's a lot of data, case studies, textbook examples of what flushing might look like on Caucasian skin. But, you know, in the same disease state where, well, you know, what does a flush look like? You know, what, what does redness look like on, you know, black or brown skin or, you know, folks who are different, you know, ethnicities. And so it's important, you know, I think a great example of this in the real world today is facial recognition and the issues that they're having with confusing individuals who are people of color and being able to clearly identify white faces and differentiate between people accurately. And so that is a great example of inequitable data, data that are skewed or biased towards the creator or the creator's experience. And so it's very important, again, that as, you know, as we're talking to ourselves about, okay, what data do we need, you know, we have to make sure that we're not collecting data based on who has the right money for us. You know, we have to make sure that the data that we're collecting are for the true population of patients we're trying to help, that the data we're collecting are for the true spectrum of clinicians. A great example actually also is anthropometric data, 95th percentile male, 5th percentile female. A lot of those data are from the 80s. A lot of them ignore, you know, people with larger body types, people with different disease states, they, like they're very healthy people oftentimes because oftentimes they're military data sets. And these are people who are forced to exercise every day. You know, so there's there's a lot of bias in these data sets that are inherently shaping, this, literally shaping the size and the form factor of our medical devices. And those data sets, so part of what I like about the idea of equitable data and making sure your data are considering the full spectrum of the population that you're actually working with is that it can be a really fun study. It can You can show the, the deltas, the differences between the data sets that are out there and the data sets that are hopefully more realistic and more comprehensive. So while you're looking at data, it is again important not to follow the money on the data. You know, you wanna follow value and value often means getting the entire spectrum of your intended target market. So, you know, you don't wanna accidentally you know, write your data, write your code and, and collect things such that it only benefits one small group because then inevitably you're going to have lower adoption and also it's harmful to society on a broader level. So I think those two things combined are really important is that there's, I know that in business and entrepreneurial, in the entrepreneurial world, there's always a business aspect to it, but I think it's important that when we try to develop new medical devices, especially we're trying to solve a meaningful problem. We're not just trying to be the next da Vinci. We're not trying to be the next intuitive. We're trying to do something that is specific and meaningful and not just saying we need to go into robotics because robotics sounds real fancy. Mm -hmm. That's a really powerful statement. I think it's really great to drive that home, especially because I think about it like this way. I feel like like chasing the money in healthcare is kind of like a very short term, like what you need to do in the short term. But honestly, if you want to bring like push a sustainable healthcare system forward and bring more value to you. And I think about it this way, too. If you are using data that encompasses everybody that's going to use this product, you're going to be more successful in the long run because it's going to be able to, you know, you know, it's going to work for everyone and not just that short term, you know, using data that we have like for people from the military that you're gonna be able to raise funding with. So I think it's just a very powerful, powerful statement to bring to light, I think, especially in the entrepreneurial industry in this space, because people are, I think, so focused on, you know, who's going to pay, where are they going to get their money and how fast we can get it to market. Yeah. What 100%. And it, it's so funny to me because when I when I was first starting out my career, I didn't know that much about the entrepreneurial space. And now I work with startups regularly. And what I've found over time is that the startups who are most successful are the ones who wait around for the right money. 
and it, I think I told you this in our last conversation, you, it, it blew my mind that someone's like, oh, you, you don't need money. You need the right money. And I, I didn't fully understand what they meant uh, you know, right away, but it, it became clear over time that there are people out there who are specifically looking to help your technology. They're specifically looking to grow your type of business. They're specifically hoping for that business model to help, whether it be something that was relevant in their lives, their personal lives, you know, a parent, a spouse, a child who had a condition, or whether it's simply, you know, somebody who, you know, has has been informed by other startups that they've worked with, right? But then this idea that I saw people, the most successful startups I know turn down money, not because they didn't need it, but because they didn't align with the people who were offering it. They felt that those people weren't going to be good collaborators. They weren't going to enjoy working with them. And so, you know, I, I think about the same thing from a data perspective is that you, one of the questions you might want to ask potential investors is, you know, are there any must-haves for you, you know, to avoid if they say, oh, you got to have AI and AI doesn't make sense for your product. You don't want that investor because they're going to force your product down a weird path that really kind of devalues the original intent of the device and the original value. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw in a shameless plug here just because it aligns so well. So Nemec, who, like I mentioned before, in Petri started Zymedica and Nemec, I think with this whole vision to move the healthcare system in, into a more sustainable being, because right now it's it's not sustainable. And the best way to do that is bring new innovations in that are going to move that system forward. We also, we partnered and started a micro investment fund called Magpie X a few months ago, and we are still accepting applications. And I think that what Kate just outlined really aligns with kind of what Magpie X is the mission and value is, is really investors who have been in the med tech space. There's the, the people who have started it are both the founders of Nemec. We have two clinicians on the board, a successful business leader from the New England area. And you can find us all at www.magpiemedtechventures.com. But we're partners with Magpie X. You get to work with Nemec if you are accepted into that accelerator. But I really just want to throw that out there that really this fund was started to make medical innovations successful so that they can move the healthcare system forward in a more sustainable way. Yeah, that is, it's funny. I actually didn't realize that you guys had launched that, but that's excellent. Yeah. One, one of the things that I, I'm involved in a bunch of different accelerators and I tend to mentor folks through the entrepreneurial process through those programs. And one of the things that I would suggest as an entrepreneur is that, and Magpie X would certainly fit this, is that when you apply for an accelerator or you're interested in an accelerator, you should ask whether or not they have human factors expertise you should ask whether or not they have a human-centered approach or industrial designers. Some aspect of human-centered design should always be part of an accelerator because if you're only interested in the money and the business, I advise on business strategy, I advise on business modeling, but really if you're missing that usability aspect or that compatibility with the human brain and body, your accelerator can only get you so far and you're still going to need those experts if you don't have them in-house. So it's, it's mm-hmm. also, it's a huge benefit to come to a place like Nemec or, you know, or, you know work with Magpie and Nemec because they do have those expertise and are sort of founded upon those. So it, it is a real boon for you to have that long-term success if you are looking, you know, that three to five years down the road when you're done with your series, see, you know, what is that going to look like? What is it going to look like on the market? And that level of adoption you get having brought that expertise in early is infinitely higher. It really is. Yeah. I would love to add to that too. We see a lot of technologies go through accelerators as well that the accelerators are focused on healthcare. And I think just look for the key word for like a regulated medical technologies, make sure that they have expertise in the regulated space. Because the amount of people that have gone through full accelerators and then still had to come and pretty much start back at square one. They, they worked on their business in these accelerators, but they had to go back to square one because they missed so many things in the early stage, like product development regulatory space. So we just want to save you guys time, time and money. 
Oh, the regulatory aspect is heartbreaking. And it's a great point. You know, the again, this is going back to data too, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are plenty of FDA, IEC, ISO, like there's all these different regulatory bodies that have made statements about data. They have stances on it. I think that's an entire podcast in and of itself that we could go into. But if you don't know how the regulatory bodies feel about data, data collection, privacy, and the amount of effort that it would take to maintain the privacy at an appropriate level, especially if you want to launch in Europe, their privacy, their regulatory body, the MDR, which used to be the MDD, is extremely privacy conscious and patient rights conscious. And so if you're like, ah, we'll just slap some data on at the end. No, you won't. Uh, It's not going to work that way. Do you have any insight? This might be another a topic for a whole other podcast, but quickly, do you have any insight into data collection for like the regulatory bodies in the digital health space? So we're like moving into focusing on digital health, specifically like digital therapeutics. And we're actually at a stage right now where we're doing a lot of research. We have two interns working for us doing a lot of research into digital health racial bias within data, and then kind of what the regulatory system is looking at. And right now in our conversations, they're at the point where they're like, we don't know what the regulatory bodies are looking for. Do you have any insight into that? Ooh, it is. It's a sticky question because, and this is, this is not a knock on regulatory bodies. This is just the reality of it is that they strive to be standardized and they work really, really hard to stay on top of new innovations. But ultimately, it could depend on the reviewer you have that day. It could depend on whether they need lunch. You know, there's a lot of subjectivity even within those very thoughtful and very appropriate boundaries of the regulatory bodies set. And so for digital health, are you thinking like telehealth specifically? Or are you thinking, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about the products you're thinking about? And I can dive in a little deeper there. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty broad. We've been trying to like generalize what falls under digital health just for ourselves. So we run like at Nemec, we have like some pretty robust medtech education programs. And right now we're looking, right now we're really focused. Our education program that we run is really focused on like the industry, the regulated industry as a whole and entrepreneurship. We're trying to create like a curriculum under that. We're actually, we're in the process of creating curriculum under that, that right now is like fitting what the industry is doing within the digital health space. So I think like, I'm very interested in like the digital therapeutic space, because I think that's like going to be huge in the future, just as I think people move away from big pharma, but maybe we focus on that, the digital therapeutic space. Yeah. So, so if I'm thinking about digital therapeutics and yeah, big pharma has hopefully had its day, but you know, there's always uh, that the persistent lobbying for that sort of thing. I think one of the biggest things that I can say, so when I think about digital, I know that there's digital means a bazillion different things to a bazillion different people, but the original digital health, in my opinion, was the EMR, the EHR. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of times when I think about how regulatory bodies are going to treat that and telehealth, you know, those are the two, the two things that have made it mainstream. They're happening now. It's very real. And so I look, when I look about security and privacy is a huge one. You know, you have to be aware if you're doing something digitally, what data are being collected? Has the person been informed fully? You know, informed consent and IRB work, not only during your studies and your, your usability efforts and your development, uh, your beta and testing, your clinical trials, but also once they're actually using it. You know, informed consent in medicine and understanding of where your PHI or personal health information is going, you know, that that is really key. You know, there's there's a huge amount. I'll talk about trust, which I know the regulatory bodies won't use as their word when they talk about it. But I think that digital health needs to, just like an AI would with a physician, you know, all of the, the products that you're creating have to acknowledge the risks of data breaches, convey where the data are going in layman's terms, 
you know, you have to really think about how would you tell, you know, how, how would you tell this to a four-year-old? How would you tell this to an 84-year-old? How would you tell this to your best friend? How would you tell it to your mom? You know, that those that's the language that you need to be using in like privacy policy and things like that. And then thinking about how they're going to regulate maybe the functions. I think there's already a lot of home health out there. And I don't know that I foresee digital home health, because I imagine that a lot of digital therapeutics will also be in the home, which is kind of the, one of the values of them ultimately. I don't actually foresee those being treated much differently than other home therapies. It's sort of like the home therapy space and then the privacy and digital health, the you know electronic health space. Those two things combined will sort of, I imagine, create the foundation. I think a lot of the regulatory bodies don't like to redo. They want to reinvent the wheel. They don't want to, you know, they, they like to pull from as many existing precedents as possible. And so I think that it's important for us to say, okay, what's already out there that's tangentially relevant, that's likely to come in and support this new thing. And then where are the gaps in those, you know, precedents? And what does that mean for, you know, how are they going to fill in the gaps? How can we proactively get involved in helping them to fill in the gaps? Because I think the, the gaps are going to be small, but they're going to be very meaningful because of the novel context in which digital is existing. And so I think it's, it's important that industry leaders jump in and say, let me, let me read the draft guidance. Let me comment on the draft guidance. Let me ensure that we're writing TIRs that are appropriate for this. Because what you don't want to see are, are the issues where, you know, let's say clinical work is, or clinical precedents and clinical processes are applied to, they're like, okay, well, let's apply a clinical process to a human factors process. And it's like, ooh, that's almost a good fit but not quite. And so you want to avoid those near fits. And again, the industry strive to do that, but sometimes it's just like, hey, we already have this. It's mostly relevant. Let's put some band-aids on it and call it a, a process. And so mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the, the way I see that going. But I think as far as insights of specifics of, you know, what people to watch out for, I would be, uh, be pulling things out of the ether. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I have like a hundred more questions I'd love to ask you, but we have to start closing it down. But I would love to give you, is there anything kind of on topic today that we haven't spoke about that you want to want to talk about or cover? Well, I think since we're talking about data and digital, a few of my colleagues and I are working through, you know, artificial intelligence and data and basically like how I would say that there, there's an interesting thing when it comes to data about the chain of data, because I think that there's there's sort of this lifespan of if a patient goes into their primary care physician and they have an issue and the primary care uses some sort of, you know, data-driven diagnostic tool, and then they refer them somewhere else, and those data go with the patient to the next place. It's a different specialist, different, you know, ultimately a different user when you think about it. And then that person maybe has their own system for diagnosing, their own diagnostics. Maybe they have their own AI, maybe they have their own data, but they're also leveraging these other you know, data from the primary care office. You know, that happens over and over. And then you go, you go into surgery after the diagnosis from the specialist and that surgeon's using a different AI. There's an interesting thing of, can you, can you harmonize without you know, insisting upon universal design as far as you know, all brands creating the same types of you know, form factors or architectures? I'm really fascinated, and I think it's a topic worth worth talking about in medicine. Is this idea that you know we need to be protecting patients, but we also need to be ensuring that as they move throughout the process, there's some consistency in that experience, and that they're not jarred. You know, this AI and that AI, and this one's different, and this is a whole different thing. And so, I'm fascinated to see as AI starts to develop and those types of data grow, 
you know, what, what are the problems that we can foresee and how can we maybe now as an industry proactively prevent them by saying, oh, I can, I can already tell you that, you know, this is a deep learning AI and this is more of a supervised learning AI and these two AIs are going to come up with very different answers. And which answer do you go with? You know, when, when AIs don't agree, what, you know, who has the greater eye? You know, wow. yeah, they're both yeah. artificial, but what's what, where's the intelligence there? And so that's that's one of those hot topics that I, I keep bouncing around in my head that I love to to nerd out on. Yeah. And so that's definitely something that I think entrepreneurs, as they bring in AI, should be very aware of. It's like, what are the other AIs that are currently in your space? Are you just, is everyone lever- leveraging IBM Watson? Like, is that just what everyone does now? Or are you trying to develop your own code? If that's your business model, who else do you need to be compatible with? Like system of systems, right? Like you yeah. are a cog in a, in a very large machine and you have to acknowledge where you're going to interact. And I think that's also good for entrepreneurs to think about is what other you know, yes, I'm going to focus on this thing and getting it right and making sure it has good safety and efficacy. And then, okay, what is it interacting with? Where are my interfaces from with other devices as well as with other individuals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially we kind of sit in the gap between academia and industry. And before, this is probably like six months before the pandemic, we were doing a entrepreneurs boot camp for a group coming from Korea. And a lot of them were working with AI technologies and they wanted to speak with like some industry leaders here. And we couldn't, first of all, it's hard to get in contact with the industry leaders in that space because they're so busy and so needed. But we do have a relationship with a schools here, like AI lab and their AI labs focus in healthcare. And it was really interesting going in and speaking with them about all the work they're doing. But at that time, there was such a gap between the research they were doing and actually implementing it and the confidence they had of implementing it into industry. And I really think that gave us all an idea of, you know, where we are and where we need to be and how we need to kind of focus on. And I think this brings back to, you know, finding the right data sets and pulling that those larger data sets that encompass everybody for healthcare because it is the most important industry. And there's big risks with putting this kind of technology within, you know, consumer or um, clinical technologies. But it'd be very interesting to go back and speak to that, that lab, you know, two years later and see kind of where they've been, where where they've gone. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you say the, I want to remember what you just said, the fact that AI is, for entrepreneurs, this break between practice and theory, I think is really important. Because right now in the industry, there's this sense that as long as you say AI, you know, hey, great, we have AI. It's again, it's that checkbox. And you just like checkboxes are so problematic in entrepreneurship yeah. and businesses because what, what checkboxes do is they put you in a position to be, you know, a bullshitter and they put you in a position to talk, you know, out, out both sides of your face. They make you less trustworthy because what you really need is transparency. Like I, I always say to people, you have to imagine the commercial for your product, right? Like what would what would the, the text over the commercial be? And I if love the that. Text over the, if the text over the commercial is, you know, we use artificial intelligence to analyze your health. Like, what does that mean? It means nothing. It's garbage language. Like it, it doesn't like, it doesn't sound fancy. Yes. Is it modern? Sure. Does the patient know what they're getting? Absolutely not. And so if you say something more specific, like, you know, we use artificial intelligence to analyze six times as much heart rate data in two weeks so that you can get your diagnosis faster. Like, great, that's cool. Now I know what you're doing, kind of how you're doing it and why you're doing it. And so if if you don't have those pieces in your value proposition, then AI isn't a value proposition. Really in and of itself, and same thing with data, data are not a value proposition. Data are just a means to an end, which is your value proposition. And if you don't know what that end is, 
you shouldn't be moving forward with it really. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. I feel like that was the perfect statement to enclose this whole episode. So thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. So insightful. I've learned a lot. And it's it's so interesting to be able to speak to somebody that, you know, you have your niche in like the research and design field, but you have that full kind of view of the whole entire process where you're able to kind of talk about the importance of these early stage processes and how they're going to affect your whole entire commercialization process. So thank you very much. If anyone listening today is interested in working with Zymeticor or with Kate herself, what is the best way to contact you, Kate? The best way would probably be to email me at k-m-a-c-n-a-m-e-e at zymedica.com. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. At Nemec, our mission is to support medtech and digital health startups expedite the developmental process in order for their ideas to realize commercial success and ultimately provide value to the patients they serve. Learn more about how we can support your startup's path to commercialization at www.nemeccenter.com. That's N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. We put out new episodes of MedTech Monday every other Monday. If you have a story, guest, or an idea for a MedTech Monday episode, please reach out to us at info at nemeccenter.com. That's info at N-E-M-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Thanks for tuning in.